Hello and welcome to the Chair's Corner from the Department of Medicine at the University of North Carolina. This is our series that explores topics related to autoimmune disease. The focus is to help patients and their loved ones understand and manage their own condition. Today's episode will focus on autoimmune thyroid disease and we welcome Dr. Deepa Kirk, an Associate Professor of Medicine in our Division of Endocrinology and Metabolism and is also the Medical Director of the UNC Hospital's Diabetes and Endocrinology Clinic. Dr. Kirk regularly sees patients at UNC who have thyroid disease, including autoimmune thyroiditis, and many of us refer to her on a regular basis. Welcome, Deepa. Thank you so much. So what on earth is autoimmune thyroid disease? Autoimmune thyroid disease is a complex term. It's not really one disease. It's rather a term that refers to a number of different ways that the immune system could affect the thyroid gland. Where is the thyroid? The thyroid's at the base of the neck. So if you were to take your fingers and press kind of right at the bottom of the neck, you probably wouldn't feel it because most thyroid glands are difficult to feel. But it's about four centimeters tall on either side. It's the shape of a butterfly, we like to say. Uh, but that's where it's located. And so that organ, what's that? the thyroid supposed to do in the first place? The thyroid does a lot of things. It produces thyroid hormones. These hormones affect essentially every cell organ in the body. A simple way to think about what thyroid hormone does is it is kind of a contributor to metabolism and activity. So it may rev up the system, so to speak, but if it's produced in appropriate quantities, it keeps many organs and systems in equilibrium. So if your thyroid is overworking or hyperactive, how do you feel? If your thyroid is overactive or if you're producing too much thyroid hormone, you may lose weight without meaning to. You may be very hot. You may be sweaty, anxious tremors that you or others may notice. And we often hear people say they have rapid heartbeat or a fluttering sensation, which we refer to as palpitations. And then in contrast, uh, in hypoactive thyroid, how do people feel with that? So with underactive thyroid, as you'd expect, kind of the whole system slows down. So people may feel sluggish, tired, constipated, Hair and nails can become dry and thin because they're not turning over or being produced in a normal fashion. So when the thyroid gets damaged in one way or the other, what can happen? One could have either an active thyroid problem or a hypoactive thyroid. Is that right? That's correct. Now, statistically speaking, it's much more common to develop underactive thyroid as a consequence of autoimmunity affecting the thyroid gland, but thyroid diseases are incredibly common, so we definitely see the whole gamut. So let's come back now to this question of what is autoimmune thyroid disease, and you've said that there are many diseases that are encompassed in that word. Help us with that. I would say the most common kind of autoimmune thyroid disease causes underactive or hypothyroidism. Some people may have heard the term Hashimoto's thyroiditis. It's really a term that refers to inflammation within the thyroid gland. It was named after a physician from Japan, a Dr. Hashimoto, who described it. 
But essentially, that is the most common kind of autoimmune thyroid disease. Less common, but perhaps more dramatic, is something called Graves' disease, again, coined after a Dr. Graves. It causes the thyroid to become overactive, and I'd say that's a lot less common, but in a thyroid practice or endocrine practice, we see a lot of it. The most difficult one, I think, to diagnose and give a prognosis for is just the catch-all term, thyroiditis, which simply means the gland became inflamed in some way. It may not be a permanent condition. Most of the time it's not, but it's a little more difficult to figure out the course of a disease of generalized thyroiditis. So just to recap, autoimmune thyroiditis can result in an overactive gland hyperthyroidism. It can result in a less active gland or hypothyroidism, but it involves inflammation of that organ one way or the other. Typically, it does involve inflammation. In some of the hyperthyroid conditions, the antibodies are actually just stimulating the gland and not so much inflaming it, but most of the conditions are associated with inflammation. So how does one actually diagnose any of these uh, problems? There are a number of different ways. If a patient has symptoms of overactive or underactive thyroid, you would test a simple lab called the TSH, or thyroid stimulating hormone. And that's part of a thyroid panel, or is that a different? It can be. In fact, it's probably what we consider the most useful part of the thyroid panel. Uh, The TSH is one part of the thyroid panel. Interestingly, the TSH is not a thyroid hormone per se. It's another hormone that serves kind of as a barometer or a gauge for how the thyroid's been doing over the previous six weeks. Thyroid-stimulating hormone, or TSH, comes actually from another endocrine gland. It does. It comes from what we call the, quote, master gland, which is the pituitary gland, a very small gland, about a centimeter at the bottom of the brain. But it sends signals to the thyroid, and TSH is the main signal it sends. And so the TSH is a useful initial test in the workup of somebody who has thyroid disease. It is. It's the most sensitive test. It changes very quickly and fairly dramatically in response to even tiny changes in thyroid function. Let's talk more about the thyroid test in general. There's the TSH that you've already described. What are the other components of a thyroid panel? The two other components of the thyroid panel is some sort of measurement of T4 and another measurement of T3. T4 and T3 are just shorthand terms for the actual thyroid hormones that the thyroid gland makes. And TSH stimulates the thyroid gland to produce T4 and T3. That's correct. Mainly, it stimulates the thyroid gland to make T4. That's about 80 to 90% of what our thyroid gland makes. But it also stimulates perhaps 10 to 20% production of T3, which is just a different form and perhaps a more active form of thyroid hormone. Help me interpret the TSH test, which you've described as so important, because it's a little counterintuitive to figure out how best to interpret it. If the TSH is elevated it means what? If the TSH is elevated, it means that the gland is underactive. It is a confusing concept even to our medical students, and I usually tell people a simple way to think about it is if the gland is dysfunctional in some way, not working properly, 
the TSH will move in the opposite direction to let you know what's going on. And that's, I suppose, because the pituitary gland is producing more TSH almost to rev up the thyroid in the hopes that it makes it work more efficiently? That is absolutely correct. The pituitary gland senses the thyroid perhaps is underfunctioning, and as a consequence, will raise the TSH level in the example of an underactive thyroid. So conversely, if the TSH is very low, it would mean that the thyroid gland is overactive because it's the pituitary senses too much thyroid production already. That's right. If the thyroid gland is making too much thyroid hormone on its own, there's really no reason for the pituitary gland to make thyroid-stimulating hormone and appropriately lowers the TSH. So in addition to the clinical symptoms and this thyroid panel, what other diagnostic tests does one need? If a patient is hypothyroid, underactive thyroid, oftentimes we don't need any other testing panel. We rely on these simple blood tests as well as obviously the patient's history and our exam to decide what's going on and if treatment's needed. By contrast, in a hyperthyroid patient whose gland is overactive, there are a lot of different things that can cause a thyroid gland to be overactive and sometimes we'll use radiology tests. We'll use something called an iodine uptake and scan and that'll let us know what part of the thyroid is active and how active it is so we can tailor our treatments. And what are the uh, various treatment options? So for underactive thyroid, again, it's a little more simple. We as endocrinologists are fortunate in that if a gland underfunctions, we can usually just replace what's missing. So if the thyroid gland is underfunctioning, we can provide thyroid hormone, uh, which is a synthetically made hormone but mimics human thyroid hormone. On the other hand, if a gland is overfunctioning, there are a number of different options. You can give people medications. You can give more kind of definitive or permanent treatment with radioiodine or even surgery in some cases. There are actually a lot of thyroid preparations out there that patients are exposed to. There's the synthetic version, but then there are all sorts of other kinds of thyroid preparations. How should a patient talk with their physician about what kind of uh, thyroid replacement medicine they should take? So in general, most providers, physicians, and most societies do recommend mimicking normal human physiology. So most of us will recommend that a patient take something called levothyroxine, because the name for the thyroid hormone your natural gland makes is thyroxine. So it's essentially a mimic of what you're making, and we like to mimic what the normal body does to optimize health. There are other preparations out there. Um, there are some preparations made from ground desiccated or dried porcine thyroid, meaning thyroid from a pig. It might sound a little odd, but it's been around for many years, uh, many decades in fact, and some people may feel better on a preparation that comes from a quote, natural being, even if it's not a human being. And is that preparation as easy to use as the synthetic levothyroxine? It's not quite as easy to titrate, meaning to adjust the dose. It's not as predictable. Everybody may absorb it differently. It has a couple of different thyroid hormones in it. 
in kind of a fixed concentration. So it's definitely doable. It's not incredibly complex if you're used to doing it, but it's not anywhere near as simple or predictable as using human synthetic thyroid hormone or levothyroxine. Are there issues with respect to the timing of when one should take medications, uh, morning, afternoon, evening? Does it make any difference at all? It does make a difference for patients who take medication for hypothyroid or underactive thyroid. So if you're taking levothyroxine or Armor, which is a porcine thyroid preparation, we do recommend it's taken on an empty stomach, often in the morning before breakfast. It's absorbed best if you wait about a half an hour to an hour before you eat breakfast. The most important thing is separating it at least three or four hours from certain vitamins like calcium, magnesium, iron. We're talking about supplements here, not necessarily what's in your diet, simply because you will not absorb your full thyroid hormone dose in that case. That's an important thing to know because otherwise one could imagine taking a handful of pills in the morning, including uh, thyroid medication with one's vitamin at the same time, which could include everything you've just described. Yes, I've often found a mild disturbance in thyroid hormone being lower than usual in a patient who's been on the exact same dose for a long time. And in closer questioning, perhaps the person's been prescribed iron a few weeks before. And just by separating the two, their numbers will go back to normal, and there's no need to adjust thyroid dose in that case. In addition to medication for hypothyroidism or an inactive gland or the therapies you've described for a hyperactive gland, are there other lifestyle changes, diet, for example, that uh, patients may be thinking about? That's a great question and one that I get with increasing frequency, so I suspect there's a lot more information out there regarding this. Uh, patients understandably want to do whatever they can to optimize their health. And I'd say perhaps with autoimmune thyroid disease, that's a little bit of a frustration point for both patients and providers because we don't have a lot of good data as to lifestyle changes and dietary changes that patients can make that'll affect, improve the thyroid condition. Um, we do tell patients, I get a lot of questions about iodine. Um, many people know that iodine is necessary to make sufficient thyroid hormone. But in fact, extra amounts of iodine or very high amounts such as found in supplements can be detrimental to people with autoimmune thyroid diseases. It can actually make the situation worse in some cases. So in that particular instance, we advise that patients eat normal dietary iodine, meaning eat how you normally do. You may take your vitamins, but no need to supplement extra. Some patients are interested in the effect of certain kinds of vegetables, cruciferous vegetables, broccoli and cauliflower and things like that. What's the impact of those kinds of vegetables on thyroid? This issue or this question about cruciferous vegetables has been circulating for a bit. Initially, the interest, I believe, was raised by animal studies that suggested certain products, compounds in these cruciferous vegetables might be detrimental to thyroid function, basically kind of shut down the thyroid machinery and make the different components of thyroid production ineffective. It doesn't really translate into humans, particularly in normal amounts of food that we eat. Even those of us who really enjoy our vegetables, even if we have thyroid disease, should feel absolutely free to eat as much as you want. It's possible in extremely high doses. You know, we're talking multiple broccoli kale shakes a day in a patient who has very mild early autoimmune thyroid disease, conceivably could have slightly lower thyroid function in that setting. 
But in the normal everyday setting, I absolutely encourage people to eat vegetables that they enjoy. And carbs or carbohydrates and sugars, does that have an effect? Not that we know of. Again, there is a lot of information circulating, but in terms of data that we can use to help counsel our patients for thyroid disease, um, there really is not. Not good for the development of diabetes, carbs, and Absolutely sugars. not. High amounts of carbohydrates and sugar we discourage for many other disease processes. For many processes. other reasons, right. Yeah. Uh, what other kinds of lifestyle changes or alterations, modifications should patients consider? Are there things that improve the quality of life? You can imagine that somebody who's hypothyroid who doesn't feel like they have very much energy, boy, lifestyle changes that one could imagine could be beneficial would potentially be really hard to do. It is, and there's not a one-size-fits-all um, recommendation. There is not really one lifestyle change you recommend to affect the autoimmunity part, but as folks are being treated to raise or lower their thyroid levels, the most common concerns we hear is feeling very fatigued, having a lot of difficulty with weight. People tend to have difficulty losing weight even when we're addressing or fixing the thyroid problem. So usually we recommend taking dietary changes that are recommended for the general population, but not getting frustrated, sticking with it, and knowing that it may take three, six months after the thyroid levels normalize to feel perfectly normal again. Yeah, so that's the hard part because, in fact, patients say, I don't feel well, I feel like my thyroid symptoms are still there, but you say to them, but wait a minute, all your labs look perfectly normal. That is a very common scenario, at least in my practice. I'd say about 5 to 10% of folks who we as physicians feel like we've done a good job, uh, at least fixing the numbers, then look at our patient and realize we haven't helped our patient as much as we had hoped. Um, and it's unclear why that is. There is some emerging research suggesting that some patients respond to medications differently, may need combination of medications. But equally important is to listen to your patient. And there may be other things going on that you haven't addressed. There are a lot of diseases that coexist with autoimmune thyroid disease that an endocrinologist like myself might address, um, and a lot of diseases that I rely very heavily on my patient and his or her primary care provider to address. Let's come back to this TSH test. So let's say the person is floridly symptomatic comes right out of the textbook of hyper or hypothyroidism is perfect. And the TSH is spot on, cold, normal. Then what? In those cases, particularly if you are convinced the patient has symptoms and signs consistent with underactive or overactive thyroid, you would probably not stop at the TSH. Uh, you would go ahead and collect the actual thyroid hormones themselves, which may be T4 or T3. We've been talking about autoimmune thyroid disease affecting the thyroid gland itself, and that is absolutely true. Um, that is what autoimmune thyroid disease affects. But the thyroid gland can also be affected by non-autoimmune disease. So if that pituitary gland, the master gland, has stopped functioning for some reason, now remember this is more rare, but if that happens, then the signals won't be sent to the thyroid, the TSH may actually look fine, a little low, a little high, a little normal, but you can't use the TSH in that situation. So if we think the thyroid is dysfunctional for some other reason besides autoimmunity or a direct attack, we may go on and measure the T3 and T4. Now, the difficulty lies if a patient is having symptoms and everything's normal. You know, if the TSH is fine, 
T4 and T3 are fine. Many practitioners are drawing another test called antibody tests. So TPO antibodies is something that Thyroperoxidase antibodies. Anti-thyroid peroxidase antibodies. Correct. Um, Anti-thyroid peroxidase antibodies are the ones that are associated with autoimmune thyroid disease, which we've called Hashimoto's thyroiditis. The trouble is a lot of people in the population, particularly women and particularly as we age, can have TPO antibodies in circulation but not yet have any destruction of the thyroid gland. When these folks come to us with symptoms, it's a very difficult conversation because we can't give thyroid hormone. It's not safe to do it when the thyroid gland is still functioning. But people may complain of things like fatigue and difficulty concentrating. Currently, we don't offer medical treatments for people who just have thyroid antibodies detectable. So what's the most common question that you get from patients with thyroid disease? The most common question I get relates to prognosis, meaning what's going to happen to me and how long will I take to get better. Uh, a related question is why did this happen to me? I think that's probably not an uncommon question for any autoimmune disease because we don't have great answers. Those two questions together probably comprise most of what people ask me the first time I see them. Yeah, the common three questions that I think all of us who take care of autoimmunity are what caused my disease, how did I get it, and what's going to make it go away, what's going to make it worse. And then the other question for that many of us hear is what's going to make it never come back. Patients who are on uh, thyroid replacement medicines, though, may end up being on that medication forever. Is that right? That's true. That's true. For people who have autoimmune hypothyroidism or underactive thyroid, I would say the vast majority of people will need to be on some sort of thyroid replacement indefinitely. There are a small number of people who may have had a transient condition, and we certainly don't need to continue medication in them, but it does become part of their daily routine. In contrast, people who have hyperthyroidism or a hyperactive disease, many times you can get that disease under control and no other long-term therapy is required. Correct. We tend to use the same terms that perhaps other specialties use. We say a patient can go into remission. And when I first see a patient, sometimes I can give him or her a good idea of their chance of remission. Younger people, people with less severe disease, a women tend to go into remission more from overactive thyroid, but certainly we've seen it with all age groups and genders. So what fun new research is exploring the answers to the questions that patients are raising? I think probably the things that patients would really like to hear about, and we don't have the answers yet, is what treatments could actually modify the disease course. You know, Right now, for underactive thyroid, we tell them, we let the immune system do what it's going to do, and we'll replace your thyroid when it's all over. And as you can imagine, that's kind of a suboptimal answer for a lot of folks. So there are some ongoing research trials as to treatments that might modify the course to avoid the thyroid being destroyed. The problem, of course, is that a lot of those treatments um, can be worse than the disease itself. A lot of the treatments we use to affect autoimmune diseases can be toxic in and of themselves. But hopefully, particularly for conditions like Graves' disease, we'll be making progress. The other thing that I think patients are interested in is the optimal replacement regimen for those people who don't feel well on the standard therapy, levothyroxine or Synthroid, which is one brand. And there are some 
outcome trials hopefully coming down the pipeline to help us figure out which patients might do better from the get-go with a different type of regimen. Patients are looking for uh, trustworthy sources of information about multiple autoimmune diseases and especially autoimmune thyroiditis. Where do you tell them to turn? Uh, one of my favorite resources is the American Thyroid Association. People are often surprised and happy to learn there is an American Thyroid Association. It's an incredibly active group. There's an incredibly active group of patients who run part of the organization and work in close collaboration with physicians and scientists. So I think it's a wonderful resource. The Endocrine Society also has a resource at hormone.org, I believe, that is very patient-centered. There are navigation tools that give you a virtual tour through the endocrine system, including various thyroid conditions. So I think they're both pretty useful and very reliable sources. Thank you, Dr. Kirk, and thanks to our listeners for tuning in. If you've enjoyed this series, you can subscribe to The Chair's Corner on iTunes. Please leave a comment and give the podcast a rating. You can also like the Department of Medicine on Facebook to receive updates. Thanks so much.